Luke in here, and it's taken us a while longer to get through the book of Luke than I had anticipated. Um, Downtown Faith Center did a series in the book of Luke, and they're already done. I'm only in chapter 8. We're not even close, okay? Which is cool because I love this book, so I am happy to take our time through it. We're in the middle of chapter 8, and in the middle of chapter 8, Jesus talks about light displays, and then he gets on a boat. And I want to take a closer look at both of those things and see what they have to do with our lives, starting, to, starting with light displays. Let's just look at one verse out of the middle of chapter 8 of the book of Luke, this first-hand account of the life and happenings of Jesus. This is Jesus talking, and he says, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Jesus is saying in this verse that light is so amazing that it's something that should be put on display, and I completely agree. I love beautiful light displays. I want to show you three that I just think are incredible. Okay, here's the first one. This is actually called light painting. There are artists that are more techy than I am that can take a normal photograph and redo it by painting with light. Don't you want to do that for a Christmas present, right? Okay, let's look at the second one now. This is a light display, um, a Christmas light display in Japan, and I thought, we need something like that in Eugene, just a tunnel of light to walk through, all right? And the third one, God, not to be outdone, does the northern light, and he wins this little competition, all right? But all of these things are so beautiful, you would never want to hide them. You'd want to put them on display for all to see. Mary Oliver, the famous poet, asked a great question of all of us. She asked this, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? What are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? What a great question. Jesus answers that question for us in the verse we just read. He says, this is what I want you to do with your one wild and precious life. I want you to take it and put it on display, and I want you to shine. That's what I want you to do. Let's look at Matthew 5.16 in the book of Matthew and what it says about light displays too. Again, this is Jesus talking in an epic sermon, and he says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven. According to Jesus, we are the light of the world, and he doesn't want us to hide. He wants us to get out in the open, hop up on a pedestal, and let the light of our good deeds and our kindness and our acts of love radiate out into the world so that people will notice and be drawn to the God who inspired us to do them in the first place. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to shine. Let me give you a great example of someone that did that. There's a guy named Orville Kelly. Um, he's since passed away, but he lived, and a few years back, he started an organization called Make Today Count Incorporated. Here's the beginnings of it. At a very young age, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And at first, when the diagnosis hit him like a wave, he just got really depressed, and he went home, he said, with my wife, to just cry and wait to die. And after a few days, he goes, screw this. I am not dead yet. I want to do something with what is the remainder of my life that actually matters. So he started this organization called Make Today Count Incorporated. And what they do is they put together support groups for people that have been diagnosed with terminal illness. And in these support groups, they encourage people to be in the now to milk every, everything they can out of every second of every day, out of every breath that they have left. And they want people to, instead of concentrating on their imminent death, 
They want them to truly live with the time they have left. Orville Kelly knew how to shine. Starting this organization was a way for him to radiate light out into the world, and people noticed, and they noticed his faith at the same time, too. It's interesting to me that in Genesis 1, the first words at the onset of creation were these four words, let there be light. Those are the first words that, according to Scripture, God spoke to us at the onset of creation. Those four words, I'm, I'm going to get all science and geeky on you here, but those four words didn't stop Okay, at earth. Those four words, let there be light, continue to radiate out into the cosmos. New planets, new stars, new suns, new moons are still being created by God's creative work, by those four words, let there be light. New light is still appearing. Our universe is expanding at a rapid rate. Well, those four words, let there be light, are still echoing through our lives as well and having their creative work in us. Those words, let there be light, are still prodding us and inspiring us to get out there and shine. Through our words, through our deeds, through our acts of love and kindness, we are helping more light to appear in a very, very dark world. I don't know what God's going to prod you and ask you to do, what he's going to say for you to do that's going to create more light in our world, but please obey him on that one because our world needs more light. I was actually driving through Eugene the other day thinking, man, our city seems dark right now. I don't know why, but it just felt dark, and it wasn't the weather. It was a sunny day. There just, it just felt like there was a lot of darkness, and I thought, okay, God, I get it. We don't get to gripe about that. We get to shine. So I hope you can hear that. Now let's talk about the boat ride. You know, there are some really cool opening lines to novels, and I'll get to why I'm saying this in a second. It all makes sense to you. I wrote down a couple, and if you know these, this is an honor system, if you know all five of these, because some of them are older ones and some of them are newer ones, but they're all well-known novels, if you know all five of them, I will take you out to lunch, okay? But it's an honor system, all right? You can't go, yeah, I knew all five of them after I give you the answers. All right? Number one, this is a great opening line. The night breathed through the apartment like a dark animal. Don't you want to read that book? That's how it starts. The night breathed through the apartment like a dark animal. Anybody know what that is? No? It's the novel Reckless. So I don't owe anybody lunch already. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Number two, if you can even get four of these, I will buy you lunch. All right? So, because you're off to a pretty awful start. Juiced had two problems, the moon and his mustache. Don't you want to read that one too? You don't know what it is though, do you? I read more than you guys do. That's what's happening here. That's the novel Six of Crows, all right? I'll give you coffee if you can even get three of these. You should get this one. Call me Ishmael. Yes, thank you, Dorothy. Moby Dick, all right? Number four, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. You know it? Yes. I will buy you coffee. You're not too young. Okay? The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. And then the last one is actually a movie right now. I'm giving a big hint. It was a dark and stormy night. Thank you said the book editor. Okay, so <laughs> you should know that one. All right. I'm going to read you a story out of Luke chapter 8 that actually could be entitled 
with that opening line from A Wrinkle in Time. It was a dark and stormy night. Let's look at Luke 8, verses 22 through 25. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into the boat eventually and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. I'll talk about that later. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, which is what anybody would do, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Just thought you should know while you're sleeping, okay? He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters, and the storm subsided, and all was calm. Interesting. Where is your faith, he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? Who is this guy? He commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. Now, a couple of things here. You probably thought, well, it doesn't mention it was nighttime. But in Mark's mentioning of this same story in the book of Mark, it says it was nighttime. Thus, it truly was a dark and stormy night. The first thing I want you to notice about this story, though, is this. Jesus was one of those people. Some people seem to have this amazing gift that I do not have. They can fall asleep anywhere, anytime, any place at the drop of a hat. It's amazing. They're the kind of people where you go on a trip with them and you sit down in the airplane and you're just getting buckled in and you turn around and they are asleep. They're asleep. It's so irritating, okay? Or you go to a movie with them. It can even be an action movie. Buildings are burning. Bombs are blowing up and they are sleeping. Do any of you, just raise your hand. We're, we're family here. I won't make fun of you today. You have that gift. That is amazing. Anybody else have that gift? Pete, I know you have that gift. That's a, okay. Some of you do. We don't like you very much most of the time, but it is truly an amazing gift. Jesus evidently had this gift. I think part of the reason that he was able to sleep during this storm was because of this. He'd finished this extended period of teaching. I don't know if you've ever spoke publicly in any format, but I get what's called adrenaline letdown. And people that know me well, especially that golf with me on Monday mornings, know that I experience adrenaline letdown, and it affects me till Monday at about 10.30 or 11. I am not fun to be around on Monday mornings. My blood feels thick. My brain's not firing on all, you know, like all the circuits, and I am grumpy. I think Jesus was experiencing adrenaline letdown. That's what was going on here. Some of you have an extended case of adrenaline letdown because you've gone through a crazy busy season of your life. And right now, you're dreaming. You're longing for a vacation. But not one of those kind of vacations where you go to a theme park and wait in line. Not one of those vacations where you fill your your days with tours and activities and adventure. You just are looking for somewhere exotic in the world to take a nap, aren't you? That's what sounds so good. I'm not just talking about you older people. Some of you in your 20s are going, man, I just want to lay down on a beach and sleep for hours right now. You're feeling that, okay? Jesus can relate. But back to the story. This story is actually a very important one in the book of Luke because it reveals to us the true identity of Jesus in greater detail. We get to see who he really is. Now let me explain. See, the punchline of the story is at the end when the disciples ask one another or just whoever is listening, who is this guy? Who is this man? That question is actually answered for us in the story. So if you're taking notes, write down this. This is who Jesus is. Jesus, first of all, is in the boat. It's not just what he did, it's who he is. 
Jesus got in the boat with these disciples. He didn't have to. He could have walked around the lake. It would have taken him longer, but he could have made it. He could have had some quality alone time, but he chose to be in the boat and in the storm with his disciples. I want you to notice something, though. This storm was a doozy. It was a doozy. There were experienced fishermen in the boat with Jesus, and yet they were freaking out and thought they were going to die. They'd seen storms before. They'd fished through storms. But this one was different. This one had them fearing for their life. They were taking on water. They were just sure they were going to drown. Again, in the book of Mark, the word seismos is used to describe the storm, where we get seismology, how we measure earthquakes. There was something about this storm that was so violent, it shook them to their core. It was a tempest. It truly was a dark and stormy night. And not only were they freaking out about the weather, they were freaking out about the water. You see, ancient Jews weren't water people. The, world, the movie Waterworld would have been their worst kind of nightmare, okay? Actually, a lot of their heritage was wandering around in the wilderness and desert. They preferred land. They believed water to be a place of chaos and darkness and trouble filled with monsters called Leviathan and behemoths. It was a reservoir of evil to them. They all knew the story of Jonah and what happens when you get washed overboard. You get swallowed by stuff, okay? They wanted none of that. I recently came across a picture that instantly made me feel how I believe the disciples felt in this dark and stormy night. Let me show this to you. Now that's like a 14-foot great white, and he's on a paddleboard. A paddleboard, okay? Now some of you are thinking, ooh, I wish I could do that. I never want to do this. This is never going to make it on my bucket list because I don't want to be eaten, ever. I don't even want a bite taken out of me. I don't want to be tasted, okay? None of that stuff. It made me feel how I believe the disciples felt. They were so, so deeply afraid. So Jesus is with them in the boat. He didn't have to be. He chose to be. His response was different. He wasn't freaking out like they were. But there he is. He's in the confusion. He's in the darkness. He's in the fear with them. He's going through this dark and stormy night. And I think, when I read this story, I thought, this is just the best thing I've read all week. Because all of us step on the cosmic banana peel every once in a while, right? All of us get tripped up and we end up being a passenger on a really bad boat ride for stretches of our life. To rant and rave at God about those, during those times feels good for a while. To yell out at Him, why are you letting this happen to me? That is a completely normal response, but it's actually the wrong question. Because when you're yelling at God and saying, why are you letting this happening to me? You're presupposing that God is somehow apathetic and distant from you. And that's not the truth. A much better question is this in the middle of your storms and troubles. It's to ask this, God, where are you? That's a much better question, because that question gets instantly answered. God will always say to you, I'm right here. I'm in the boat going through this storm with you. There was a holy woman that lived in the 1300s named Catherine of Siena, and she had this storm in her life. And I wrote down this situation she had with God. She said this, My God and Lord, where were you when my heart was plunged into darkness and filth? Have you ever felt like that? Where were you, God, when my heart was plunged into darkness and filth? And she heard God speak to her in the middle of her storm and say this, my daughter, first of all, isn't that great? When God refers to you as my daughter or my son, it's 
he's that close to us. My daughter, did you not feel it? I was in your heart. In other words, I was in the boat with you, going through the storm. That's who Jesus is. And since he's like that for us, we should naturally want to be like that for others. I was reading a book recently, and the author was asked, what do you do when some of your friends or associates or coworkers or loved ones or even family members are going through brutally difficult times? And this is her response. I edited out one of the words, okay, because there are children here, all right? So let's look at this. First of all, you bring them a sandwich or you let them vent. Maybe you watch a little TV together. You offer your presence, your warm body, and the willingness... Oh, I didn't edit it. Dang it. And the willingness to feel like crap with them and offer no snappy answers. Sorry. I seriously thought I edited that one, all right? Well, so there you get the blunt version, all right? But it's so true. I actually love that. We can put that off now, okay? I love that because when Jesus was in the boat with these people, he did not answer any of their questions. I'm sure the disciples had questions like, why are you letting this happen? Why me? Why us? Why now? Or at least, why are you sleeping right now? He didn't answer any of those. He was just there with them, and that was enough. I'll be honest with you, going through storms, it does feel like at times God has abandoned you. I get that. It doesn't feel good at all. But God's presence, I want you to know this, it can't be measured by our feelings. Our feelings are not the gauge of how close God is to us. Faith is. And faith always says to us, God has not abandoned you. He's much closer than you can even imagine. He's in the boat with you. That's what he's like. That's who Jesus is at his core. That's what we should be like for others. Second thing, again, if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus is our peace. Some of you, when you were growing up, your parents would try anything to get you to sleep because um, some of you don't have that gift, you know, that you can just fall asleep right now, especially when you're little. So your parents would say stories to you or sing to you lullabies. There was a famous um, prayer at, at bedtime. I don't know who invented this, but they were not good parents. And it went like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. No kid on the planet is going to go peacefully to sleep after listening to that prayer. They're all going to panic and think, if I should die before I wake and God's going to take me, I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to die. Nobody could sleep except Jesus. Because look at him. He is so calm that even though death seemed imminent to these experienced fishermen, he is so calm, he's snooze cruising in the stern of the boat. Wow, he shows us here that there is a peace available to us that our circumstances have nothing to do with. Our circumstances cannot dictate our peace. I'll come back to that in a minute, but let me say this. I'm going to list for you thing, two things right now. First of all, two things that will rob you of your peace in an instant, and two things that will usher you into peace. I've discovered these in my life, and they're so true. First of all, the first thing that will rob you of peace is to think that your peace depends on other people liking you. That will rob you of your peace so fast. It's robbed me on many occasions, and it was the same with the disciples. There's this one story of Jesus. He says to the disciples, I'm going to send you into this village, and I want you to preach in this village. I want you to tell these people about my love and goodness, and the kingdom of God is so near to them. They have this amazing opportunity at life. 
abundant life. So the disciples go, yeah, we're on it. And they go into the village and they preach, and these people completely reject them. They want nothing to do with their God or them, and they kind of shoo them out of the village. And the disciples come back and report to Jesus. Basically, they tattle to Jesus and say, you're not going to believe it, this village. They wanted nothing to do with us. And then they ask this question of Jesus. Do you want us to call down fire on them and destroy them? I didn't know that was an option, did you? When people rejected you, I literally did not know that was an option, but evidently it was for them. But Jesus will have none of it. But that's how it goes, right? We all want to be liked. There's none of us that go into meeting a new person and go, I don't give a rip if this person cares about me. Except me on Monday mornings before 1030. I really don't care if you like me. Okay, adrenaline letdown will do that for you. But most of the time, we want to be liked. And when we're rejected or even hated, what do we do? Well, the first thing is, we want to call down fire. We don't have that gift, but we want to somehow make these people suffer. We want them to hurt like they've hurt us. We ask Jesus, is that okay? Is it okay, Jesus, if I arrange pain to enter into their life somehow? And Jesus will have none of it, right? So we move on to step two, which is we let them set up camp in our mind, and we obsess over what a horrible person this person is. We daydream about it all through the day, just thinking thoughts about how horrible they are. And then we go to step three, which is to obsess about what horrible person we are to think such thoughts. And before we know it, poof, our peace is gone. We've got none, okay? We have to realize something. People are not the source of our peace. Jesus is. He's the Prince of Peace. So it is possible for us to have peace even when there are people out there that reject us. I've got people that hate me. I have a couple of people I'm pretty sure they wish I was dead. Okay? And yet, I can have peace. I don't blow that off. I don't deny it. That's hurtful to me. But I still have peace. I still sleep at night. You go, oh, they hate me. Eh. And I go to sleep. Because I know that other people don't. Okay? And especially God doesn't. Second thing that will steal your peace is this. To think your peace depends on your circumstances. Oh, it does not. See, we all get a case of the if-onlys every once in a while, don't we? We think, oh, my life could be filled with peace if only. If only I had a better job. If only I had a better spouse. If only my kids would behave. If only I knew what I wanted to do with my life. If only this storm would be over. If only, if only, if only. The if-onlys make you focus on what you don't have hope you can hear this. Peace comes when we focus on what we do have. On your worst day, one of the best things to do on the worst day of your life is to take at least a minute and count your blessings. Because it makes you realize, oh, yeah, I'm having a bad day, but I still have peace because I'm still blessed and loved by God. Okay, now for the good stuff. Two things that will bring you to peace. The first is stillness. Mark's, in Mark's telling this story, when Jesus calmed the storm, he says this, Peace, be still. I do not think Jesus was just talking at the wind and the waves right there, though he was doing that. I think he was also talking to the people in the boat with him and to every one of us. In fact, I think he's saying it to some of you today. I think he's uttering into your heart right now, Peace, be still. Because see, peace and stillness are often connected. Usually my first step into walking into peace in my life has been this. Sit down 
and shut up. Because I have to calm, I have to put my monkey mind and my hyperactive body in neutral to experience peace. So I looked up in Greek what these two words meant, peace and still. It was fascinating. Peace is the Greek word sipao. It's hard to pronounce, but it means be quiet. Seriously. Still is the Greek word thimoo, which means calm down. In other words, sit down and shut up. That's exactly what it means in Greek in the original language. Jesus is telling these disciples, you're freaking out, sit down, shut up, okay? It's going to be okay. There's a really famous spiritual leader, and he always seemed to have so much peace, and so some people in an interview asked him, what is the secret to your serenity? And his answer was fascinating. He says, I don't mind what happens. That's all he said. In other words, whether it's good, whether it's bad, I just don't mind what happens. There's a person that realizes that circumstances don't dictate your peace. And you only get that kind of insight when you're in the stillness, when you're in the quiet. No wonder Jesus often went away by himself to pray because he wanted to experience the peace that only comes in the quiet. Rabbis back in his day were famous for taking one hour at the start of their day to be in utter silence and to still their mind. We don't even take one minute, and yet we wonder why we don't have any peace. Because our first step needs to be, sit down, shut up. That's the first step. Second thing, they'll bring you right to peace. Faith. Faith definitely brings us to peace. Jesus says to his disciples, where is your faith in verse 25? And I don't think that's so much of a question, though it's that. I think it's really an invitation. You see, these folks had been with Jesus for some time. They'd seen things. They'd seen what he had, he had done, and yet they quickly forgot. So he's saying to them, when he says, where's your faith? That's his way of saying, remember who I am. You've seen me. I'm the Jesus that preached with a great authority and insight. I'm the Jesus who raised a person from the dead not long ago. I'm the Jesus that healed the sick, that had the blind see. I am the Jesus that loves you. Don't forget who I am. You've been with me. You've seen these things. These waves are not going to change who I am. I'm not suddenly going to lose my power. I am still Jesus. It's so interesting to me, the Hebrew word for faith is imuna. Now, what makes that word interesting is when it's pronounced correctly, it sounds like a baby donkey crying for its mother. So to get the full effect of this word, and I can't do it yet, okay, you'll have to practice at home. Don't try it now. You have to pronounce this word like you're a donkey brave, okay? The disciples would have known this word. So when Jesus says, where is your faith? They would have known he was talking about this faith that's all about dependence, dependence on him. This is good for us to know because during your inevitable storms and troubles, Jesus is going to invite you to remember him, to think about him, to meditate on him. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Remember my goodness. Remember my teaching. Remember my power, my authority. Remember all that. No matter how big the waves in your life are, no matter how scary your situation, they're no match for me. I'm still Jesus. And peace is available the moment you call out in dependence to me like a baby donkey braying for its mother. Oh, so great. Google baby donkeys braying. You're welcome, okay? And lastly, who is Jesus? Jesus is the God-man. 
There's so many Marvel superhero movies going on right now. He's truly a superhero. He's the God-man. There's this hidden message in this, in this story that most of you wouldn't be aware of, and it starts in the book of Daniel. Daniel was an Old Testament prophet that the disciples and Jesus would have known about. And Daniel one time has this dream, and he dreams that out of the sea, four monsters came up. There's that ancient view, Jewish view of the water again, okay? Monsters come out of the water. These four monsters came up out of the sea, and they represented the four superpowers of the age, which would have been Persia, Babylonia, Greece, and Rome. He sees these monsters, and they're wreaking havoc, and then all of a sudden he sees another figure, a figure that's a man, and he labels this, it's a special man. He says, it's the Son of Man, which is interesting because that was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He always referred to himself as the Son of Man. Interesting. And the Son of Man completely ruled over these four monsters coming up out of the sea. Now, fast forward to the dark and stormy night, okay? The body of water they were in was called the Sea of Galilee, small landlocked sea. But it also had another name at the time, the Sea of Tiberias. It was named after Caesar Tiberius. So when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, there was a hidden message there. Not only did he have authority over nature, though he certainly had that, he also was saying, I have authority over the monster that is Rome. Caesar isn't your true leader. I am. It was a very political message when he said, be still, calm, and be still, be quiet, and be still to the waves. Because he was also saying, I know what Rome is doing in your life. Be calm. I am going to rule over Rome. These oppressors will not get the last word in your life. He is the God-man. In the battle of good versus evil, he always wins. So when the disciples asked in this story, who was this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus guy? The answer is those three things. Jesus is in the boat. Jesus is our peace. And Jesus is the God-man. What a cool story. Let me pray for it.